Welcome to the WCAPS 5 podcast series. WCAPS is an online community dedicated to strengthening the leadership and professional development of women of color, specializing in the fields of peace, security, conflict transformation, and foreign policy. Join us as we unpack their valuable perspectives, learn from their strategies, and grow together. Vive. Vision. Impact. Voice. Engagement. Hello, uh, this is Ambassador Jenkins. I want to welcome all of you to another one of the WCAPS Vive podcasts. Um, and I'm really happy to be here with my colleague, Nabila Shamshu. Um, and uh, she will correct me if I did not say her name exactly right. And I'm hoping that I did. Um, she was really nice to do a webinar with us a few months ago on chemical uh, security and nonproliferation issues. And it was such a great webinar that I really wanted just to have a little more time with her because, you know, the other webinar, we did have three amazing women. And I've, I'm looking forward to, to being able to speak with Nabila now one-on-one uh, -on -one and to share a little bit more of her background with you. Um, she's been doing some really great work and working now with the UN. And I just want to make sure that you know, like that, that, you know, you have a chance to hear about her and what she's done in her career. So uh, welcome, Nabila. Thanks for uh, taking time to be with us today. The pleasure is all mine. Thank you so much, Ambassador Jenkins. You almost got my name exactly right. Okay. It's, 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 it's dumb shape, but uh, no, okay. I'm, I'm so excited. I'm so excited to be here and I can't wait to get started. Great, thank you. So um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, where are you working now? And what are the, some of the things that you're working on? So as you very rightly said, I'm currently with the United Nations and I've been with the UN system, the family of organizations for a number of years now, ever since I got out of university. Um, where I studied global governance and diplomacy and I specialized in peacekeeping. So um, I've got the privilege of having worked with a number of different parts of the UN system since then over the last six or seven years. Um, so currently I'm with the office of the United Nations resident coordinator in India, which is the coordinating agency for the United Nations um, at the field level, at the country level. And a lot of our job is to, I, I work as a public policy specialist. So a lot of our job is to link uh, sort of the government with uh, the coordination and the work of the United Nations agencies in a country the size of India. Um, it's a very exciting country to work in because India is one of the largest peacetime operations of the UN anywhere. Um, and the work is very oriented towards the day-to-day -to -day development issues. There isn't a lot of crisis sort of context here, but in my previous jobs, um, I've had the privilege of working with the United Nations peacekeeping mission in South Sudan, which was my previous assignment, where I worked with the analysis center as, as an, an, an information analyst and reporting officer. Um, I've also worked with the chemical weapons treaty organization, the OPCW in The Hague uh, before that. Um, and then a couple of UN agencies. So a lot of this work has been around um, policy, speech writing, external relations, sort of uh, program management. Um, and so I've got to see the UN and, and especially the, uh, the work on, in peace and security that the UN does from a lot of different perspectives. So that's what I've been up to the last few years. 
Wow, that's that's quite a bit of amazing amazing stuff. We could spend an hour on each one of those. Um, <laughs> so so where are you from? And and tell us a little bit about how you got interested in in these policy issues that you're working on now. Oh, it was it was quite simple. I'm so I'm from India. Um, I was I was born here and um, I went to school here. So I've I've been here for a while and I've been in and out in my working career. Um, you know, so I've been in South Sudan, as I said, in the Netherlands. I studied in the UK, but then I sort of um, have been in and out of India with all my UN assignments as well, um, especially New Delhi, which is kind of my hometown. Um, I got interested in the issue in the issues of peace and security, I think, by first being interested in the question of war, <laughs> as weird as that sounds. But uh, a lot of this, um, the way that the Westphalian system interacts with each other, um, high school onwards, the way that we've organized ourselves into countries and communities and at a political level, um, you know, the way that the entire map of the world has changed in different ways, has always been of deep interest to me. So I, I knew I wanted to study politics. I knew I wanted to get into the, the motivations and the questions behind why communities and nations and countries go to war against each other, you know, the rise and fall of empire. And um, the more you sort of grow into that field of knowledge, you realize that the contribution, the valuable contribution you're going to make um, in policy in these areas um, is going to be in the peacekeeping realm. So so, you know, you need to um, sort of orient and divert your knowledge towards, um, you know, just sort of use that experience, use that knowledge to try to end situations of crises between these communities and nations that you've been so interested in studying. Um, and as I said, right off the bat, when I got uh, in college, I, I, you know, I had an opportunity to do internships and work with nonprofits, um, including the Asian Development Bank, which is a very sort of uh, an intergovernmental organization. Um, and that is where I think I was, I was fairly certain that I wanted to be um, in the UN system, in the multilateral in the multilateral realm, because that's where my interest was in trying to explore more of these issues. Um, and I was lucky enough to uh, sort of land positions with the OPCW and the UN right out of university uh, when I was in the job market. So, um, and then working in these, all these different organizations have just demonstrated to me the different ways in which we come together as countries to create policy. And I'm in a very sort of optimistic way, very excited about the opportunities we have, um, even though the time that we live in right now is not very benign to multilateralism, but it is the, uh, it is the motivating sort of, uh, it is the motivation behind a lot of what I do and how I engage with my work. So um, what would you say uh, led to your, your, your feelings of optimism? And I, 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 I asked that question because I think that people who work for the government, who work in multilateral organizations, um, who work in these public service policy, tech, technically policy related work, have a sense of optimism about what we can be, recognizing that we have, we have, we have, um, problems and but but by working together you know that's kind of what the UN is all about for me you know working together to make the world better where do you think that came from uh in your background um uh, I think it was um and I'm going to say something which is 
which is slightly different from you would expect that optimism comes from having a sense of idealism or, or having a sense of uh, moral direction that this is where you want to see things go. But I think a lot of my optimism, considering that my academic background was about really delving into the technocracy um, of the United Nations and uh, sort of the, um, the, the technocratic nature of multilateral decision making of international law and policy making a lot of my optimism about the direction in which we can go was fairly logical because I didn't see it so much as a function of this is what we morally should be responsible for as a world. These are the issues and this is how we must come together. I don't think there is, um, although of course there is value in cooperation, but I don't think that inherently the push towards cooperation is an ethical one. For me, it was more about uh, in the post-globalization world, we were just so interconnected as countries uh, that we began to have a common language, a common understanding of certain things that cut across um, boundaries of the Westphalian state that began to seem artificial. I feel like the volume of trade, the volume of interactions, um, the sheer complexity of the internet, um, you know, just the way the world has evolved, it is so interconnected across a range of issues. Um, and then, of course, we were increasingly confronted by challenges and problems, both in international peace and security, as well as in development, that seemed to be completely new and that didn't belong to a particular country. So whether that was climate change, whether it was the refugee crisis, whether it was civil war spilling across the borders of a country into another, the, the, the challenges and opportunities of migration, uh, whatever the motivation for that are. And I felt like there was a logical conclusion uh, to being to sort of being a world that was able to handle these challenges efficiently and that was to be cooperative to come together with a head start in these multilateral systems whether that was the united nations whether that was a new formed sort of newfound united nations 2.0 whatever that looks like you know not to say that we, what we have what we call multilateralism today is perfect but i think there are opportunities to strengthen those relationships to sort of rebuild the social contract on the base on the basis of which we would be able to build um, a world that is just better equipped and fit for purpose to deal with these fundamentally global and multinational challenges that we have today. And that sounds great. And the reason why I like so much of what you said is, you know, I think um, a lot of a lot a lot of what I talk about is similar you know, about global security and the challenges of global security and the connections um, amongst some of these challenges. And you know, I think, you know trying to help others understand that. And I, what I like about what you said is the recognition, the understanding of all of that and, and having that very strategic view about, you know, the way in which these uh, forces interconnect and relate to each other and that we need to find a better way to work together to resolve some of these, these, uh, these kind of global challenges. So um, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, that to me, that's another reason why, you know, you work at places like, the UN or other multilateral organizations, because you want to find a way to, to do these things all jointly and working together. Um, and so you've mentioned a lot of really interesting places that you worked in organizations, you know, working in South Sudan and in OPCW, for example, um, and where you are now. So how did you manage those types of um, transitions? And I ask that because I know a lot of young people come to me and ask me, you know, how did you go from this to that to that? And and you mentioned that you started early, you know, when you finished school, you you kind of knew where you wanted to go and you went there. How did you do that for for younger people who want to know, you know, what do I do? How do I be like Nabila? How do I do what she did? 
Ah, that's, a, <laughs> that's a, I'm not sure if, uh, young people want to be like me, but uh, I'm going to answer the question about transitions, um, which uh, it's also, I mean, I'm still, I feel like I'm still at a, as a stage in my career that I think about these things. I wonder if I'm uh, headed in the right direction. But what has worked for me in a surprising way that I didn't think would was making the shift between a lot of different kinds of work in organizations. Um, a lot of people will tell young people getting especially into the field of international peace and security or getting into the very broad sector ag agnostic area of multilateralism that uh, you need to be a specialist straight away and you need to pick your area of specialization and, and that has to be very, very narrow and you have to do it early. But when you actually get into the, the technocratic side of implementing multilateralism on the ground, which is through organizations of the UN and treaty bodies, you realize that a lot of the work that you're doing uh, needs transferable skills. For me personally, that was what kept me going. I, I found it, um, of course, it's challenging. I'm not saying it, it isn't without its uh, sort of disadvantages and without its own particular challenges. But at the same time, whether the, the, the entire area of international cooperation, of being able to get countries together or implement an international mandate in a challenging security environment or in a challenging developmental context, requires a certain set of skills that can be transferred, say, whether you're working in the UN development program, uh, in a field office somewhere in Asia, whether you're working in a peacekeeping mission in East Africa, or whether you're working a headquarters job uh, in The Hague. Uh, which is, you know, greatly diplomatic, a lot of your work is going to involve being able to listen to a lot of different kinds of stakeholders and develop solutions that respond to everybody's needs. So it's kind of like, um, if I could use an example from the private sector, it's kind of like, you know, it, let's say it's like being a management consultant. Um, you know, they work on a lot of different areas, but it's easy to make that transition. And um, I wish that, um, you know, someone had told me this when I was young. So I think through the podcast, I'm also going to reach out to young people and tell them, I don't think, um, especially at this age, when you're in your 20s and your early 30s, I don't think you should back away from trying a lot of different kinds of things. Um, the transitions are challenging, but they're completely worth it. Um, I went from disarmament to peacekeeping. I could have stayed in disarmament for longer, um, but I decided to do the peacekeeping stint. And, and from peacekeeping, I went to development because the opportunity was that great. Um, and I haven't regretted it because even in the development sector now, the, the invaluable lessons that I learned from being in the field during an active conflict zone and being able to sort of write crisis um, reports for headquarters while there was active gunfire raging outside and tanks were firing at us um, always holds you in good stead no matter what you do. So uh, I would say that the transitions are challenging but they're absolutely interesting and worth it. So I, I would just reach out to everyone and say you should make them, just take the leap wherever the biggest opportunity for you is, you should go there. Right. And um, what would you say? I mean, you're, like you said, you're still early in your career making, making, uh, you know, looking at where you want to go and what you want to do. But in the interesting jobs that you've had in the past, I mean, what would you say would be some of the best aspects of what you've done in those jobs? Oh, there are so many to choose from. As I said, I was extremely privileged just to, to, to have these opportunities and the two sort of, um, big highlight moments for me so far that I, I do want to talk about. Um, and both of them just happen to be a, a, just, just a coincidental function of being in, in the right place at the wrong time, actually, because um, 
the two offices that I worked with in quick succession, the OPCW in The Hague and the UN peacekeeping mission in South Sudan, were confronted by some of their biggest crises at a time when I happened to be working there. Um, with the OPCW, I started working at a time when the organizations and so the, the chemical weapons convention was signed um, in the in the early 90s. I think it came into effect in 1993, if I'm not wrong. And they'd never confronted in the life of the organization an actual event of chemical weapons being used in conflict. Um, they'd never had to confront that before. So it was a preparatory organization, an absolutely excellent one that was disarming under international verification countries that had got together 190 states in a commitment to disarm and um, their, uh, their chemical weapon arsenals under, you know, with the verification of international inspectors. It was really uh, an example, uh, an exemplar of how multilateralism can do disarmament. But the actual situation of someone having used chemical weapons somewhere was something we were confronted with in 2013. Uh, when I was working there and we got news of chemical weapons being having been used in uh, Syria in a suburb near Damascus. They said sarin had been used uh, and a number of people had died. And then just to be able to deal with that, that the, 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 just to be able to be in a situation where you saw information coming in and then you had to, in the real world, this was not a simulation anymore, deal with what information has to be taken into account, um, what certain diplomats are saying about it, how the first political statement needs to be drafted, how it needs to go out, how the next political statement will be drafted. And then when I returned to the organization in 2015, um, you know, the, we were confronting the, the implications of uh, the disarmament of Syria that had just taken place on international waters through a joint UN and OPCW joint mission. Um, and that was an absolutely fascinating, interesting time to be there just to see policy in action. And the second, of course, is uh, when I went to the UN mission in South Sudan, a peace agreement had been signed and it was about to take effect between the, the government and the rebel leaders. Um, and then in Juba, which was my duty station, the capital, um, when the, the returning army of the rebels, uh, they, they sort of came back to the capital and we thought that the peace agreement would be sort of taking off now. The rebel leader is going to become the vice president. Uh, Mr. Riek Machar was returning. Mr. Salvakir was happy to open up the government for him. Um, and then, of course, the two sides uh, started shooting at each other and it erupted into their sort of second civil war uh, in the history of the organization. Uh, the mission was under direct fire. Um, it got caught between the, the attack on both sides. And so a lot of my analytical work, I was working there as a reporting officer. So I had to basically develop um, mission leadership briefs and situation reports, weekly and daily situation reports, analyzing the security on the ground, gathering uh, sort of uh, intelligence from different parts of the mission and then putting them into a narrative about what was happening. And to be able to do that in an active conflict zone for weeks um, when all of this was happening was a complete, it was something completely different from what I've done before. Um, and I can only hope in hindsight that my work made um, a difference. Um, I, I hope that I was able to tell that story. I hope I was able to, uh, you know, translate that information in the right way to make, um, to affect the, U sort of, uh, you know, to get, um, to make a contribution to what the UN was trying to do and what the international community was trying to do. So again, a, a very significant time to be there. And I, I am very thankful to have both opportunities, really. Yeah, so say a little bit about more about your time in, in South Sudan. Uh, give us an, tell us a little bit about what that was like. 
Um, so I, um, uh, like I said, I joined the organization, uh, the peacekeeping mission, um, right out of the Hague. I applied for a position with the analysis center there. And uh, this was at a time when peace had just sort of started taking off. There was a peace agreement in place. So a lot of my work at that time was about reporting on the, the war that was actually raging across the country, but it hadn't really sort of all accumulated together into what you could call a civil conflict. So you had a lot of cattle rustling, you had sort of ethnic conflict raging across the country. Um, and my job there uh, working off, uh, so the UN is organized in a peacekeeping mission in, in, in a very sort of joint and closely knit way. So you have a peacekeeping mission, um, everyone lives on the peacekeeping base. Um, so we sort of like, uh, you know, we're living with the troops who are actually the Blue Berets, the peacekeepers on the ground. Uh, the mission leadership is all living together. Um, we have a joint operations coordination center, which takes uh, sort of the information that we provide from the anal analysis center and conveys it to force headquarters. So there was a lot of that coordination work, uh, really all of us getting together, trying to understand what the narrative was here, whether the peace would hold, uh, what were the little strategic issues that would come up, not just in terms of making sure the transition from war to peace happened successfully, but also to make sure, for example, that humanitarian convoys uh, were being given adequate protection when they went to deliver important life-saving aid to different parts of the country. Um, and that the human rights work and the civil affairs work all came together. So it was a really, um, the analysis center was a good place to be in because we got to routinely engage with all the different parts of the mission um, and then develop all the stories and all of the intelligence that they had from the ground into these intelligence reports and these, you know, uh, properly laid out narratives that the mission could act on. Um, it is a difficult duty station to be in. Uh, it's a non-family duty station of the UN. Um, of course, it sounds a little facetious every time you talk about, you know, your work as a peacekeeper or a humanitarian or an aid worker being challenging because you're working in a situation which is so which is so challenging and where the people that you're working for are so on the edge of survival uh, on, on so many different counts. I mean, it feels kind of, you know, whenever I try to talk about the difficulties of the duty station, I run into the challenge of actually saying it was challenging for me because I actually lived on a base where, you know, I knew that if things got very bad, I would be evacuated quite safely, safely by the international community, by the UN. It was actually the war raging uh, on everybody else, that was much worse. Um, so I won't say much about the challenges of actually being there. But then, um, and then the war broke out in the capital city um, when the peace agreement seemed like it was being sort of, it was all coming together. And the, the sort of the future, the vice president designates army had moved into Juba. Um, we were on, we were at work when we first heard on our radios that firing had started in the middle of the city. And then we started hearing firing near our base because the base is actually located near Jebel Mountain where the rebels uh, sort of bases are. So they were right next to us. Um, and then we were sort of, um, you know, basically crawling on our knees across in our houses, sleeping in the bathroom, uh, sitting under our desks and writing situation reports for the next couple of weeks. We would get into work um, in the morning uh, when, you know, during the ceasefire hours were late at night. So we would try to get into work very early in the morning before they started shooting again. Um, there were situations when tanks were positioned outside our building and they were shooting sort of um, at a target near us, um, not directly at us, but, you know, which kind of were quite uh, frightening. Um, and then to be able to do useful work there in that situation, 
um, trying to put together an analytic, analytical report that tried to explain what was happening. I saw people who had a much more challenging job than myself. I at least um, was in the office, even though we were being fired at, but we had analysts who were actually in the field, um, in the protection camps, um, you know, with the humanitarian convoys who were sending us information from, you know, really in an unprotected capacity. Um, and so it was, it was just, um, yeah, I can, I mean, it was one of the things I don't think I'll ever, I'll ever forget about. It was, it was really invaluable in every sense. Wow, what a great experience. Um, and how, I'm curious, how many of the women were there with you at, in, during the Sudan experience? Um, there were women in uh, quite strategic roles um, in the office that I worked in, which I was quite uh, pleasantly surprised to see because I, I know the statistics about UN peacekeeping. And, uh, you know, with the, with the troops and everything combined, I think the percentage of women is not, not very high. I'm not sure what it is, so I don't want to put out a number, but it's mm -hmm. actually quite, it's, not, it's nowhere near gender parity when it comes to United Nations peacekeeping missions. Um, and it's difficult, especially with the nation states contributing troops, because a lot of the troops that are sent are, you know, sort of male-only contingents and battalions. So, um, but there were women in strategic positions, there were women in the analysis center, there were women in the, in the military from different countries in, in the operations that we did, um, that I had the privilege of working with uh, the head of the mission, um, the special representative of the secretary general um, was a woman um, during my time there. So the kind of the mission leadership, the directives coming were also from women. And it was so important for me to be able to see all of them at different stages of their career, at different ages, being able to do this, um, because, you know, you also confronted, I think, as a young woman with whether this is going to be challenging, where the glass ceilings are, what are the stereotypes, the challenges that you might have to confront if you got into a field that was so male dominated. Um, and their example was was so important um, during my work there. Well, I mean, that's um, that's really that's really uh, amazing to hear about. Uh, the number of, of women uh, who were there. And so I, I guess since that there were uh, people from different countries, so there was a lot of different ethnic backgrounds of the people who were working with you and from these countries, I assume, as well? That, yeah, definitely. Um, in fact, um, so it, 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 oddly enough, and I, so I'm from a, a college in, in New Delhi. I, I studied for my bachelor's degree in a college called um, LSR, Lady Sri Ram College, which is one of the more, it's, it's, a, it's one of the be better colleges in India. It's well known. And uh, I go into the, I go into the peacekeeping mission and one of the only sort of Indian women I met there is also from that college. And then we were just, you know, we we're quite happy because those are the places that we, end up meeting people from LSR. Um, but no, there was, uh, I was, I was so happily, I was so surprised to see um, a lot of, um, a number of Indian women. So there was, um, you know, in, in the police uh, force, in the, the medical unit, um, and there were um, uh, women from the different African countries that had, you know, that were politically engaged in the peacekeeping mission. Um, so there was a wide range of ethnicities. Um, I mean, I, I think there was a quite a, 
I wouldn't say it was dominated by any particular kind of country or cultural background. There were there was a group of women that were from practically every part of the world. Um, and that could just be a matter of the fact that I worked in the analysis center, which is kind of combines the military and technical expertise of all the different countries and brings them together. But it was good to see women of color, women of different kinds of ethnicities and backgrounds working together to problem solve um, mm -hmm. at that strategic level. Wow. And is that, do you, in, in some of your past positions at OPCW and elsewhere, I mean, has it, has you, have you also felt that there were um, an a unusual number of women um, than what one would normally assume, for example, at your time at OPCW and where you are now? I think in, um, so I would say at the OPCW, again, uh, a lot of formidable women that I had the privilege of working with, the deputy, uh, the deputy director general of the organization when I was there was a woman. Um, in general, but I, I will say that um, in, in the international organizations that I've worked in and with peacekeeping as well, the fact that I say that there were these outstanding women that I had the privilege of working with is not to negate the fact that the over the actual the gender balance in the organization is not great. I mean, we haven't reached gender parity in, um, and especially when it comes to strategic positions in practically any organization yet. Um, the Secretary General uh, of the UN has been pushing for it and gender parity was one of his first things that he did when he took office. Um, and he was able to accomplish that in the cabinet and now is trying to push for it, uh, you know, in, in leadership levels, for example, resident coordinators need to be 50% women. Um, but the reason that he had had to do that when he took office was because organizations don't have a great gender balance. So, you know, while I'm able to say that the top leadership was female and some of the, you know, the most badass women that I worked with were female. Uh, you could also see that a lot of sort of the leadership of many of the branches and offices within the organization, um, or for example, the more conventionally male dominated stereotypical areas like a purely military uh, sort of department or a purely technical scientific department, uh, there, there happen to be even fewer women. Um, and so I would I would say that that, that that's definitely still a problem um, everywhere, even though you get to meet remarkable women and and things are, you know, the organization is making its best efforts to change this. Yeah. And I think you mentioned some of this already, but what would you say is the biggest challenge? Is it because um, you're talking about an international and in, in, when you're talking about the OPCW or the UN, you're dealing with a, with with institutions where um people from different countries or countries themselves may be very male dominated in different spaces related to these issues um and they may be more dominated in in the in the phase or more dominated in some of the technical areas i mean i presume that's part of the challenge but uh, i don't know if you had any other thoughts about that it, that's definitely part of the challenge. Um, and and I, I mean, this has been said ad nauseum by everybody. So I would just, I wouldn't be making a new point here, but you know, many parts of our, uh, our structures just weren't, uh, weren't designed for women. And, and I don't mean that by saying that there's a different capability that women have. I just mean that um, any organization is a reflection of the larger world we live in, where a lot of our structures just haven't accommodated women very well. I mean, I was just reading the other day, I think less than less than 7% of the world's leaders, heads of government are currently women. And I think that any office, any organization that you work in is kind of a micro reflection of that. And although there are legal 
sort of, you know, uh, HR policies are in place and there's a lot of encouragement and calls for women to apply. There are obviously these inbuilt prejudices, as you also rightly said. I mean, there could be fields which where women generally aren't there. For example, if you have troops that are coming in from a country, um, you know, India has been one of the countries that sent an all women contingent to Liberia. Uh, and you could already see how important that was because um, the UN mission in Liberia actually issued a statement uh, thanking the, the, the police contingent from India and said that it inspired a, an increase in Liberian women becoming police officers. They said there was a fourfold increase in Liberian girls and women who said they wanted to be police officers and actually enrolled themselves into police academy and wanted to join the police. And they said they were directly inspired by the experience of seeing women. And I'm going to add, you know, they didn't say this, but I'm going to add to this probably also women of color, women who were like them, uh, Indian women who were, you know, sort of police officers came into the country and did valuable work in addressing sexual and gender-based violence, in addressing the actual crisis, um, the, the, the ongoing conflict and bloodshed and, you know, helped humanitarian convoys, got the peace agreement together. And so it's so, um, you know, there's also that, the, 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 the mental blocks of the different structures that we have that stand in the way um, that need to be demolished at every level. It's, it's the patriarchy has deep, deep roots. <laughs> And and a couple more questions and and uh, before I before I do let you go and and you did mention the topic of women of color. I mean, um, where you are now and where you are at the OPCW. I mean, um, you know, what what any 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 thoughts about that in terms of um, where things are now and some of the challenges and and how that can be how we can increase those voices and and you and you rightfully noted the impact that something like that has on young girls who, you know, as I always say, people, is, they need to see people who look like themselves. Um, and you, you made that point. So I'm wondering if you had any thoughts about some of the challenges for, you know, women of color and, you know, how, how fortunate it is that you're there and, and you could be a role model for, for other young girls. And so I don't know if you had any thoughts about that. Um, yes, you're absolutely right in every count. And I think that this is, this is action that needs to be taken at every level. Um, I think it's great that it started from the absolute top, uh, the Secretary General himself pushing for gender parity at all levels in the UN. And it needs to, it absolutely can't just be, I don't think it's as simple as saying we need to change mindsets and we should be careful of, you know, falling into the trap of saying this is just about mindsets and it's just about cultural stereotypes and it's just about getting, inspiring women to join um, these organizations in this field of work. I think a lot of that also has to do with actively breaking down the legal institutional barriers, the, you know, the, the structural violence inherent for women to join this. Um, so, and I, and that, that's at two levels. One is obviously, you know, a place like uh, the headquarters in a, in a Geneva or a Vienna or a New York for an organization um, is, a, is, a, is, a, is a different kind of challenge because then you need to sort of get the technical experts, get women from, you know, uh, who have the technical expertise to come and contribute to this field, uh, to start thinking about international peace and security um, as a place where they can make a difference, um, you know, even if, and in, a, in very important ways sometimes, not just contribute to more of the same, but actively change things. So for example, if you're a woman, uh, for example, me being in a peacekeeping mission, um, if I find, um, you know, that, 
for me to be to, to find that women in the mission are pushing for sexual violence to be taken seriously as a security concern when they're in a meeting talking about security issues in a way that probably um, you know I'm not I, I don't want to say probably wouldn't be there if if it was an all male sort of team but I think women have made an important contribution in pushing for sexual and gender based violence as a security problem to sort of securitize that question. And then, of course, so there is that the sort of headquarter level of interventions where we need to do more sort of, you know, policy work, more legal HR frameworks, pushing for that kind of change, inspiring women, connecting them, building networks like WCAPs that bring women together to learn from each other, to be able to see other women of color, you know, playing that role, um, you know, to, to, to see yourself there in a way that, you know, you haven't seen yourself before uh, because it's always been white men. <laughs> And uh, on the other level, I think at the field level, so if you're talking about, uh, you know, a, a peacekeeping mission in an African or an Asian country or a small developmental office and where there are developmental challenges, um, to be able to give agency to the people for whom the work is being done. I mean, it's not just about someone coming from the outside. That needs to be an active part of the developmental and of the peace building work that you're doing. I mean, there is no sustainable peace and there is no sustainable development at the ground level in a peacekeeping mission or a developmental agency in a country like India or, or Bangladesh or anywhere else um, without actually making women their partners in the, the, the future society that you're trying to build. And so that is a whole different level of intervention. That's about, you know, uh, getting uh, women's voices to participate in decision making uh, for the first time ever in some cases, and then sort of, uh, you know, getting them to play that active role uh, through legal changes, through cultural changes, institutional changes, through rights-based legislation, um, you know, giving them economic opportunities, pushing them towards empowerment. There's a lot of different levels of this, but a lot needs to be done. Right. And um, I'm wondering if, you know, as one last question for you, um, you know, and, and you touched on it a couple of times uh, about, you know, young girls and, and lessons and, um, you know, if what would be your, you know, in, in a room of young, young women and young girls who are, who want to learn and from your choices and, you know, how can they, how can what you've done help them think about how they can get into these fields? Um, what would be some of your, what would you say to them? I would say, um, okay, I'm going to actually, if, if I may, there is something, I know a lot of UN speeches are just, you know, more of the same, but I feel like with the current secretary general, there are, there are some very hard hitting things that he routinely says. And one of them, as I was reading about his sort of push for gender parity, um, there was a phrase that he used that really that really sticks with me. And that, that's something that I would like to say to young women through this medium. He said, we must push back against the pushback. Uh, and I think today in a lot of our, uh, you know, sort of um, our field of work, um, for people like you and me and for the members of uh, WCAPS and, uh, and women who are part of this larger sort of informal network of people who are working in international peace and security, some of our challenges are also to do with, um, you know, getting into fields which are male dominated, but then the challenges that come with them are not just limited to people judging you on the basis of your gender or your color and 
you know, second guessing your abilities, but it's also about the, the sort of the structural violence, the structural prejudice that comes with, you know, uh, whether your voice will be heard, whether your voice is important, just because you're not a man who comes from a military background, do you have anything useful to say for peace and security? I think it's important for women to push back against that push, against the pushback um, that they're being confronted with. Because yes, you may not have, you know, you may not have a male military background and you may not see security questions in the same way, but you have a technical expertise um, in the field that you're coming from. You should be confident about that, be authoritative about what you're saying. Uh, never feel like because you don't belong to the stereotype of what an agent in international peace and security looks like, that your word isn't absolutely or even more valuable than what they're saying. Because um, maybe, you know, coming from a slightly different background as a woman, maybe you didn't get into the military. Maybe you're coming from a, say, a PhD in, uh, you know, international diplomacy. You've studied hard to understand the way in which conflict and development work. You have something more important to say than all of the men in the room. And I think you should say it very loudly and say it again and again till people are ready to hear. Great. Great final words. <laughs> so great. I really appreciate um, you taking the time to do this, Nabil. I really, um, you know, I think it's really uh, enlightening and it's great to hear about your experiences and your transitions. And, you know, you've been in some really interesting uh, positions at interesting times, um, which I sh I'm sure has shaped you in, in very, uh, very productive ways. So, um, you know, we look forward to you continuing to, you know, provide advice and, and continuing to be uh, the role model that you are to young people. So thanks again for doing this. Uh, I really appreciate your time. Thank you very much. I appreciate you thinking of me for the podcast and I have had a great time speaking with you. Thank you. And um, so we'll be back again with another podcast um, very soon with uh, another one of our amazing women from WCAPS. And uh, until next time, thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. To keep up to date with all things WCAPS, visit us at WCAPS.org or join us at an event in a city near you. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at WCAPSnet. Until next time, speak up, speak out, get engaged.